Portobello Talk Radio, Radio. calling out across London and the rest of the world from the heart of Ledbroke Grove. Greetings and good evening, Portobello Radio listeners. So, um, first of all, apologies. We had a bit of a technical hitch. And uh, we're hoping that we don't have a further one because somebody seems to be drilling somewhere in the background. That's one of the joys of being in the community. So we are starting a few minutes late today with our special show on behalf of, <laughs> behalf of the uh, Pavilion Hive 2020 uh, arts program. This one is called Curating African Culture and History. And I'm in conversation this evening with two amazing women. I have Arika from the Black Cultural Archive, she's the CEO. And I have Camille from all the way from Amsterdam, from the Black Archives in Amsterdam, and she is a production manager there. So, Arika, do you want to say hello? Hello. And Camille? Good evening. Yeah, do you want to say hello to our listeners? Hi. Can you hear me? Yep, you might have to speak up a little bit. We're. Uh, I can say managing this technical hitch-up. So I wanted to start off by uh, doing some introductions. And I thought I would start mm -hmm. with Arika. And if you could um, introduce yourself and tell us sort of how long you've been at the Black Cultural Archives. Hi, Isis. Really lovely to speak to you again. So my name is Arika Oka. I'm the Managing Director of the Black Cultural Archives, which is a national charity and our purpose and our mission is to document and preserve and celebrate black history, histories of people of African descent in the UK. We're based in Brixton and I've been there since March 2019, but BCA has been around since 1981, but I've been part of the organisation since March last year. Wonderful. And Camille, do you want to introduce yes. yourself and tell us how long your organisation has been operating? Um, uh, well, my name is Camille, and uh, the Black Archives started in 2016 in a storage locker room. And we uh, moved to another location uh, in 2017. And that's when I started here after a Black Lives Matter event. And basically, uh, since 2016, we've been operating, well, 2017, operating in a building, um, which is a 100 year old or resistance organization from on, on Suriname. And yeah, so since 2017, we've been operating out of uh, a building so far. Okay, so thank you for that introduction. We're trying to manage with, like I said, a bit of a background noise. So uh, hopefully we can, everyone can hear you over that. So in terms of uh, the work that you're doing at your respective organizations, Obviously, I've been aware of the Black Cultural Archives for many, many years because I'm based in London. And I was really impressed when I heard that a similar sort of organization was being set up in Amsterdam, as I know that the people, or a couple of the people anyway, who are behind setting it up. So clearly, the, these are very, very important uh, organizations for people of African heritage uh, in, well, across Europe, really, because I think the reach is larger. And to sort of start off with you, Erika, archiving. I mean, I know you have a background. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background in archive. In arch is it archivism? Archivist? <laughs> I don't know what the Archiv word is. Archivism. <laughs> and uh, maybe, you know, why is it so important to archive African people's culture and heritage? Well, 
Mm. Well, I want to give a shout out to Black Archives Amsterdam because I first um, actually personally came across them, um, I think June last year when I met Mitch and Jesse in Berlin at the Black Archives in Berlin. And yeah. I was just doing, yes, I heard. Yeah, totally. And um, it was just like really nice to be part of the Afro-European family, African diaspora, yes. and just to know that this work is happening around Europe was, was really empowering for me personally. Um, so in terms of like, what is an archive? Why are we archiving? What's my archival background? So when BCA was set up, it was set up by a group of parents who were artists, or activists, educators, and the idea was, we can go into like more details about it later maybe, but the idea was to hold a space for community and to ensure that we have our own monuments. So, you know, this year with the pulling down of statues and the general sort of wailing in the mainstream about how could that happen, these monuments are disappearing. Actual fact, there's very little in terms of monuments for African people, for people of African descent. Um, and there was even less back in the 80s when BCA started. So the original idea was actually for it to be an archive museum. Um, and so we do have some objects and probably the main thing for like the man on the street that separates an archive from a museum is that museums tend to be object based. Everything is about the object and the story of the object, whereas archives are about other types of material like photographs, oral history recordings, films, newspapers, people's letters that they might have written home, um, documents to do with how, how you set up a publishing agency, for example, Black Panther, leaflets and things like that. So archives are more like contextual, but also the sort of material that's really easy to dismiss and to get lost. And so it really was very important that we keep that material, that we keep evidence of our presence, of our struggles, of our successes, of our achievements, and also of our mutual support as well. So it's evidence of community as much as it's a tool that we can use to understand ourselves and move forward. So that's that's why it's important to archive. That's what archives are. Because um, I think, am I correct in thinking that in 1981, when the archives started, there weren't any statues for people of African heritage. I mean, the, the, Man, the Mandela statue hadn't been unveiled yet. And uh, I'm trying to think, were there any statues in the UK? Um, not that I'm aware of. There, were, there would have been statues of that, that were representations of African people because African people feature as motifs on certain types of imperial um <laughs> looking at the video as there's of imperial structures so you yeah. might see representations of enslaved people um but in terms of statues that are actual monuments to our history and our people that uh, yeah i don't think so and actually outside of black cultural archives is a really special monument to african and caribbean soldiers 
who fought in the World Wars, the First World War and the Second World War. Like even calling them that is is like a colonial title for those wars. But I mean, in I, case, I call them the First, first and Second European Tribal Wars personally. But right, know. exactly, right. But yeah. um, on the monument, it calls them the First and Second World War, and that was right, that was built by. Um, community action, um, led by Newbie and Jack. It wouldn't exist without community action. So if we're talking about statues paid for, maintained, commissioned by the powers that be, the government institutions, then you know maybe there's there's still very very it's, few, it's, and it probably would like Nelson Mandela. And, I was about to um, say, I think Mandela, because I'm I'm a one of the custodians of the the. Um, bronze woman statue that was the first statue to an African woman yes. unveiled in the UK and part of Olmec and that was 2008 and that was done through Cecile um, uh, Nobrega and her family and the community many of the people who are involved in the archives are also involved were involved in that project and again the Mary Seacole statue at St George's was again the community and again exactly. a big shout out to Nubian Jack our brother because had it not been for Nubian Jack he, you know, so much of our history wouldn't be commemorated and preserved. So again, it's so important that community take the lead. And sort of coming, talking about community, and I mean, I've been to Amsterdam on numerous occasions, and I know I've walked around the city and looked at African presence. Can you tell us a bit about the kind of, you know, why it's important in Amsterdam to be doing the work you're doing? And, you know, what, what, what differs or what's the same about the representation of our people over there? Me? Yep, you. Um, it's important because the, the history is not actually not available. Um, we have to do it ourselves by ourselves. We haven't had any help from the government. So the archive is very important because it's hidden history. So when I started here in 2017, it was really interesting and actually sad at the same time that the Netherlands, and not just the Netherlands, but the entire continent of Europe knows more about African-American history than they do to their own. And when we were opening up boxes here, it was really sad to see Mitchell and Jesse looking at history that they didn't know that's not taught in school. So it's very important that we make hidden history available to the public. And that's something that's not reckon it's not in, even in their history books. They get one page of slavery, of uh, colonialism in their history books, and it just says that they came as guests. You know, so, so it's, 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 it, they were they went voluntarily. So they don't really talk about it. It's not something that's accessible as well. So we make it accessible. We're uncovering hidden history and making it available. So, making, you, so um, what you're saying um, is that in Holland, there's little recognition, like in education, about the history. And do you want to yeah. just tell us briefly, um, Dutch? have a colonial history as well of enslavement? Oh, they have the biggest, if I'm not the biggest. Right. Um, and Suriname, they have the Caribbean uh, as well. So there's Suriname, Aruba, Bunera, Curaçao. Um, yeah, so they have a really huge history. And also in the United States as well, they had brought people over there. But there's also a tour for that at the... Uh, uh, heritage tour by Jennifer Cass. That's something you should also, if you come to Amsterdam, you should take her tour because she takes you along the canals. She tells you the entire history from the transatlantic slave trade, how the Dutch brought people. Yeah, so yeah, it's just interesting because the entire canals are built on colonialism, slave money. And I know so, I, one of the things I noticed, I was there uh, with a sister and we were looking at the representation. They have these little statues of Africans with their hands out. 
outside chemist and a quite quite negative um, kind of representation. I was thinking about what Arika was saying about how we are presented. So I'm thinking at the base of the Nelson's column, there is a, uh, an African sailor on the sort of facade, but I mean he he doesn't stand out. And and on the Foreign Office, on um, in white, oh, there's yes. the African woman and she's naked from the waist down. Uh, her breasts are out. She's got a baby in her hand, and there's a hippopotamus and a banana tree behind her. And she's known as the the hot and tot and the hippo. So it's oh. quite a colonial and negative representation. And you know, well, we, we walk along the city. All the canals, have, all the canals have representation like this everywhere. Even the street names are are quite interesting. So if you just look up, the entire city's a uh, walking uh, monument. So. In terms of the kind of scope of your work, because clearly the work that you're both doing, the organizations that you are involved in or you run, as in your case, Erika, have a really massive impact. I'm thinking of like Olive Morris, for example, in Brixton. I know there's a lot of work going on around that. I mean, do you want to exp expand a bit on the scope of the work that you're doing and how archiving not just celebrates and preserves, but how it maybe advocates for our history and, and, and you know, kind of advocates for systemic change and the recognition of of you know our place you yeah. <laughs> sorry because <Sorry. Erica. laughs> we can't see each other i think we're both going like me me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway i'll um yeah so it's been like a very strange year in so many ways right in so many ways yeah um and i think that this year for bca is when we've almost started to grow into um our, act, our active voice, so BCA, like, as you know, ISIS, like, we started pretty much as a collective, we didn't have a building, really, we had a space that we could use, it wasn't ours, it wasn't, like, suitable for storing historic objects, and it's been, like, years and years and years and years, and then we opened our building in 2014, and that, the dream of the building, once realised, was almost like an intimidating thing to be like, how can we use this building? How can, like, what is our role now that we have a building? Does it make us an institution? And I feel like this year, or at least since I've started, um, we've started to grow into our voice and our influence and how we can, how we can use what the building gives us, which is a bit of, like, weirdly, because it's only a building, but it gives us almost like a bit of clout. And so we've been trying to think about, like, how do we, how does BCA actually use that? Um, and so, you know, things like um, we sit on a, a, a committee in the government to try and implement the recommendations of Wendy Williams' Lessons Learned report, which she um, wrote in response to the Windrush scandal. And the current Home Secretary accepted it. She's like, we're going to do all of these recommendations. The recommendations are 30 recommendations and some of them cut really, really deep. <laughs> so we'll see. But I mean, the fact that BCA is sitting on that is, is like, is massive actually. But then there's also kind of like the work that we do that isn't with government that's actually trying to amplify and give platforms to other community organizations grassroots groups like real authentic people doing the actual work that don't have that kind of level of profile that bca has but one thing i was really interested in in the black archives when i met mitch and jesse last year was that you actively collect 
racist material. And while BCA does have some racist material, I feel like that's not something that we would collect here. So I would be really interested in knowing a bit more about like the decision about how why to collect it and what you do with it. Yeah, that would be really good because I was actually going to ask about Schwarte Pink as well. But yeah, yeah. So, so do you want to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Got you've got your Schwarte Pink T-shirt on. Yeah. So maybe if you, if we, um, following on from from Marika's question, and then we can maybe mention a bit about the Schwarte Pink because that's something okay. we so, don't quite so have in the UK in the same material, way. Material uh, because it's around us uh, within the community. You see it. So Black Pink, uh, it's kick out Schwarte uh, Pink. It is a colonial. It's a care. It's a black faced character. It's kind of like Macy's Day Parade. So if you Google uh, Swatter Feet, uh, Black Feet, and YouTube, you'll see. Basically, it's a colonial tradition, and it's basically the Netherlands is upholding a colonial tradition. Basically, it's a caricature. Supposedly, it's a caricature that uh, came from a book from 1850. Slavery ended in 1863 on paper here in the Netherlands, but it was actually abolished for the certain use uh, for the. For the people, it was abolished in 1873. So the book is from 1850. It's a black-faced caricature, but it's actually not a character. It's actually a photo of a black man, a drawing of a black man. So around um, before December 5th, people black themselves up in uh, with black paint and they wear wigs. They wear these colonial uh, Moorish outfits, which was the, which is symbolic because it's the end of the Moors were no longer in power. So basically, they wear these outfits, and they still do this traditional traditionally. So we collect racist, uh, we collect racist material before they say it's, it never happened. But we collect it because it's still part of our culture. Because we're always on food, we're always on packages and 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 coffee and things like this. So you you can still find them today. In, in most countries, they still carry racist traditions, but people kind of dismiss it. But here in the Netherlands, it's still quite apparent. So people do black themselves up. And it's a tradition here that uh, it's called uh, uh, Swatter Pete. It's a character. It's kind of like a. It's bigger than it's bigger than uh, uh, Christmas. It's their it's their Christmas. So yeah, Black Pete is a character, and we're, we we uh, formulate protests every year, and they've gotten bigger and bigger, and they've become more violent as well. So um, yeah. That's but, the reason why we, we collected because we collected because it's part of our history. And so people, it's it's about preserving memory. It's about preserving memory, and it's uh, also to to make them realize that this is what they think of us. You know, this is how they see us. This is black. This is not black art. This is white art. This is their this is their perception of us. Yes, and uh, am I right in thinking that since the Black Lives Matter protests and obviously the murder of George Floyd. That Holland, there's now conversation about ending this this Schwarte Piet uh, tradition. Well, we're we're actually in, in uh, we're asking the community because we our our biggest protest was last year and it became very violent. Um, and the police are, yeah. Long story short, that we we're asking the community for this year because we uh, do protests in, in major cities. We're asking, we're trying to make a manifesto, like what's the community, what, what can we do to abolish this racist tradition? Because it's not fair to children, you know, who, who are young black children, they're called black people and they're, they have to be, it's dehumanizing. Yeah, I was about to say, it's extremely dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing. It's not fair to children of color and black children to see someone like this depicted as, you know, as a, as a racist character. 
and I, I don't think it's fair. It's, it, it's, it's fair for... I mean, I would say it's almost, you know, yeah. it's a hate crime, actually. I don't know. It is. I mean, for, I mean, me, for me, it's, I, I, just, I just think it's this disgusting. And I, if someone can't see that, then, you know, if someone keeps telling you over and over that this is racist, then maybe you should listen. And, I mean, Arika, coming back to the Black Cultural Archives, I mean, do you think that maybe, you know, things like, I don't know, when you, you know, you're a bit, well, quite a bit younger than me, but I remember the, the, <laughs> Ro- the Robinson gollywogs on the jam jars. And uh, I know that I think it's, is it in Cornwall or somewhere down in the southwest? They still have a tradition where they do blackface and they do mm-hmm. that. Um, oh, there we go. Gollywog. <laughs> and we do that. We do that. Um, they do some sort of maypole dancing. And I'm just wondering, do you think in the UK context, maybe it is time that we also have that memory alive in a space? As it almost like, I don't know, you think about the Madame Tussauds um, dungeon, if we had it almost like a... Oh my gosh. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's... I think actually like that, it, we could be getting to the point because I think one of, the, one of the issues in Britain is that we actually don't talk about it. We don't, we don't acknowledge that racism is a British problem. We don't. We think it's like, and, I, and obviously I'm using we in a very specific way. Yeah, of course. <laughs> the three of us, Thank like, you. you know, people, people do know it. But um, as a society, as a, the UK, you know, there's this kind of impression it doesn't exist. That you, you have um, people who are um, given tasks in, in government now who have gone on record as saying that racism doesn't exist and they're like given jobs to do with racial equality and things like that. It, it, it's it's probably well, maybe, one we... of these things that like actually maybe we need to have that in our face. And I, um, my, so I'm mixed race. I'm Nigerian and also from Yorkshire. And you can still um, go You've got a lo- to... lovely accent going on there, sister. <laughs> Thanks so much, sis. But you can still go to shops in parts of Yorkshire and buy gollywogs. Right. And, I mean, very worrying, our chief, most senior police officer said recently that she didn't accept that the police were institutionally racist. So, again, that's an example of exactly <laughs> what you're saying. And, I mean, I, I recently was on YouTube. Um, I'm a Trinidadian. I was born in Trinidad and I was interested because I saw, I just saw an episode, the pilot episode for Love Thy Neighbor. And of course, oh. um, Love Thy Neighbor, the main actor uh, is originally from Trinidad. So as a child in Trinidad, we used to watch this. And I watched this episode and I was actually, re- I mean, I was like, my breath was taken away about how incredibly racist this was. Because, you know, Rudolf Walker was a big hero of ours in Trinidad. And, and I was like, wow, this used to just be normal. So you're absolutely yeah. right. There's a whole history in this country that we just seem to just dismiss. Well, it's not even like the whole history. It's the whole culture yes, of right, yeah. sweeping it under the carpet, of deny, deny, deflect, deflect. We have, you know, journalists on the BBC. I forget her name. Do you remember sometime last autumn, a journalist happened to say something about Trump being racist? Um, oh, my God. White, yeah. <laughs> A white colleague um, was kind of goading her into saying it. The complaint was made to the BBC about both of them. It was only upheld against the woman of colour. Yeah. 
And even like in the last few weeks um, of BBC reports in which they say the N-word and the BBC are kind of like trying to hedge and say, oh, it's journalism, it's journalism. I mean, I, even um, that <laughs> BBC um, uh, DJ Sideman actually uh, resigned because he was so in, in protest yeah. against that. So again, yeah. you know, it's, it's impacting us on a daily basis because if our, if our media, people in the media who have African heritage are actually so appalled that they have to resign, it's, it's a really problematic situation. And I'm just thinking like, after, since George Floyd, I know like Aunt Jemima um, products have now are going to be changed. I don't know if the name is changing or they're removing the image of the sister with the tradition, you know, the head tie in the States. They're removing the, the whole image. The whole image. So, I mean, I grew up all my life between Trinidad and America, and I was always used to Aunt Jemima, and, and you know, it just becomes so normalized, this sort of whole sort of thing. Um, yeah. The reason why I think BTA wouldn't kind of actively, I mean, I might, I might be wrong, and we might take a different view on this as time goes on, but at the moment, I really don't think that we would actively collect racist imagery just because BCA is a is a place of sanctuary as well. And, right. Yeah. You know, it's, it just doesn't feel you know it just doesn't feel right in this present moment that we're in to actually like have that kind of imagery in the building that people could just happen across. But I but we do have some in the collection already. I just don't think we're going to actively pursue that. So right if you've got now. information, I was thinking more like, say somebody's doing a, a, a degree or something and they wanted to find that information. I mean, I think I was struck by what Camille said about people not forgetting, because I'm wondering where where you go to get that kind of information. I don't know. I mean, I haven't done much archivist work myself, but, you know, is that I stuff readily available over here? Because clearly it's, you know, it's going to be relevant at some point. But I mean, I've got a question for you, um, Erika. Um, do you collect audio testimonies? I've got that message from our lovely peers, who's also one of the Portobello Radio uh, um, sure. DJs. Yeah. One of our oral histories, uh, some of our main collections, actually. Okay. There's a few on the website at the moment, I think, about the Windrush generation, but we definitely, definitely collect them. Because of the pandemic, it's, it's, it is more difficult for us to collect material at the moment. But we absolutely collect oral testimonies. We're going to be recording some new ones with Patrick Vernon, who's a... Oh, well, you know Patrick. I, I know Patrick, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> and he's in, he's in the September issue of Vogue as he watches. I know, I know. Tonight. I saw he's looking very dashing. And shout out to Patrick. Again, Patrick has done some amazing work archiving uh, the history. And in fact, Patrick's actually been on Portobello Radio. He's been one of our guests. So uh, he's in the family. You know, yeah. he's doing amazing work. <laughs> so we'll be doing, uh, I guess the point is we'll be doing some like new recordings with him um, of oral testimonies about activism. But yeah, that's part of our collecting policy. It's part of our collections. But I don't want to kind of dominate the conversation because I am super interested and a massive fan of the Black Archives. And I know you guys just opened a new space. Was it last week or something? Yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about that, Camille? What's going yeah, on in Amsterdam? Actually, Mitchell just walked in. Um, we opened up uh, the space in uh, the Belmer, uh, which is the predominantly black area in Amsterdam. And, and that's in South, is it Southeast Amsterdam or something? It's in Southeast, yes. Yeah, South so we're really, I recommend to anyone to go there because I was going to Amsterdam yeah. for years and I didn't even know about this area until comrades, sisters, brothers from Amsterdam. Actually, I went to a meeting and it took place there and I was like, wow. You know, mm. it's, it's, so we must, it's really important as well to always be aware where our people are when we travel. 
Yeah. Sorry, carry on. So we opened up uh, in the, the Balmer and the idea is to make it access to make it really accessible so anyone can uh, access the books and it's going to be archived by the community which is important because that's how we we'd like to archive it should be community archiving not in the traditional colonial sense this is my personal opinion by the way do you want to give But, us some um, uh, explain to the listeners what the difference is between community archiving what does that involve and maybe also then enrico you could tell us a bit about whether we're doing those things here too well for me community archiving is arranging the books in which you think is fit. that is our arranging it not in a traditional way meaning like with numbers meaning uh It makes it easier when you uh, archive with the numbers and it, it makes it easy for, for us to also collaborate with other institutions because it's accessible online. Um, we can do it differently uh, with community archiving. Um, we can put it online, you can see what we have, but it's hard to, yeah, it's hard for me to explain it, I guess. But it's just uh, for the community to archive in the way that they see fit. And um, meaning like generation because they, they there's nothing like There's nothing like this anywhere in the country, and we're making it accessible to the public, and that's how, basically, it, when it's institutionalized, it's not accessible, it's only accessible for academics, and we want this accessible to the public. And so the one in the Belmer is really accessible, and um, this is coming in, so you can say hi. So the one in the Belmer is uh, really for the community, and it's a new space, and it's quite big. Hello there. Greetings, greetings. This is uh, the man behind me. <laughs> hey, Erica. How's it going? Good, good, good. Okay. So, yeah, I'm um, sorry. I went to know. It's always good. Always good to greet our, our, our people. So, yeah, it's, it, we opened it on Saturday and it's really run by the community. It's really just an amazing space for one year. It's kind of like a test ground. Anybody can go in and access the books and um, touch the books, read the books, do whatever. It's a really open space and it's just amazing. It's, it's uh, something that we really, really wanted here. And, and uh, I, ga yeah. I gather the location's really important because, like you said, it's yeah, right the location's in the heart of the great because it's it's actually in the heart of the black community. And coming so. on to, to the, being in the heart of the black community or the African community, as yeah. I say, um, Arika Brixton, you you are really in the heart of that community. I mean, what what is community art or you know archiving in a community focused way for you, or how important is that? Um, could you just repeat it? Sorry, I couldn't I said quite hear being, you. Sorry, being in Brixton, you're like really yeah. in the heart of traditional kind of the African, African Caribbean community. And how important is it to have that kind of community focus and to be um, kind oh, of, sure. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, BCA, that it is like completely from Brixton. It's, it's South London people. It's Brixton people that set it up. A lot of the collections come from Brixton. Brixton is the historic beating heart of Britain's black community or African or the K community. Um, it's incredibly, but it wouldn't even exist without the community being there. Um, I think there's like a really interesting um, bit of reflection that that we can do about. BCA's journey and how it how it knows it's part of the community because I, I sort of alluded to it earlier when I was talking about when we opened the building and how that kind of became this like moment of 
of um, almost identity crisis for BCA itself because the building was just this, it's a, it was a wreck, it was a shell. BCA had fundraised and fundraised and fundraised to be able to renovate it. They raised, um, just before my time, I can't remember how much it was, like £4 million or something. It was a lot, so I remember. Well, that's actually like a very, very tiny amount of money for a new building. Like oh, no, I meant like a lot for us as a community. A lot, to for, do a lot for, for us, us, right? Yeah, for us. And then halfway through the renovations, the contractor goes bust. PCA loses loads of money. So anyway, so it was this very fraught and it feels like very traumatizing moment. And I think that one thing that I'm personally really keen on when while I'm the director of BCA is to find ways to return the building to the community and find ways that the, that the building itself can be used as a platform and a space that is really um, feeding the community and nourishing in, a, in and of itself. And I think it's going to take us a little while to figure that out, not least because of the pandemic. <laughs> um, <laughs> that little thing. Um, but I'm quite excited about it. So we've been having conversations, um, like this kind of like video call conversations with people. And there's going to be a few more um, stakeholder meetings, I guess, happening um, over the next few months. And we're looking at, we're having conversations with people where they're saying we want a space for podcasting. We, the people are saying we want a space of podcasting, they're saying they want a space where they can create, they're saying that they want spaces that they can come and have like meetings that are nothing to do with us, but a lot to do with them. Right, so we're trying to figure out like, okay, so what is the ways that we can, we can change and adapt our building? And I'm also, another thing that we're thinking about is what can we do to decolonize our own professional practice? So over time and as a necessary, as a necessary part of the process to BCA getting to where it is now, um, it had to adopt archival practice in the way that archival practice is recognized by um, the powers that be. But actually, like as, as Camille's mentioned, that isn't necessarily the correct approach for what we do and for the collections we hold and for the way that those collections can be used by community. So I'm not sure what when we're going to start this because we we were we were wanting to start this a little while ago but you know things happen. Um, but we are start we we have like an intention to start looking at how can we start to, start to deconstruct that. And we've just actually got some really good news about some funding. We have a lot of collections to do with mental health and also oh, some impressive. to do with yeah really interesting but also some to do with community organizations that have come together specifically for black mental health those collections that material doesn't exist anywhere no, else. i was about to say that's really unique it doesn't exist anywhere else and that's partly like really really shocking because there's plenty of medical libraries there's plenty of libraries and archives that should collect it and they haven't because of institutional racism. Um, but we one. have just got some funding from the Wellcome Trust, which is a massive medical charity, to catalogue those collections. And we have a researcher from the uh, University of Roehampton called Karima, who's going to be actually interrogating the collections and figuring out a way that we can 
curate, make the collections accessible and available in a way that honours their creation and what they're for and who made them. It's, it's really exciting. That won't happen till I think January, but still, it's it's like hot off the press exclusive news. Wow, yeah, that's fantastic. I'm just uh, before I come on to to you, Camille. I want to shout out to Jolivet in the US, my sister and our sister who's listening. Thanks for listening. Very much a supporter of the stuff that we've been doing at Pavilion, and a shout out to her beautiful daughter Nadia. So, um, who is actually a media just launched a YouTube channel with a really amazing um, piece that she's done about. Uh, actually being traumatized as a young woman of African heritage in the States through a racist practice by a teacher. So, um, yeah, well. it's uh, really important stuff coming out. So, um, uh, kind of following on from what Arika was saying, uh, Camille, is there anything that I'm going to ask you in a minute about how you feel about, you know, the support you're getting from the government, you know, from, from mm-hmm. Holland and from England, etc. But before I do that, is there anything particularly around health or any of those kind of issues that that feature in your archive collection? Because I feel it's really interesting. There's a real connection, certainly in the UK with mental health and the African stroke, African Caribbean, African with a K community. You mean uh, if we have documentation? Of yeah, I mean, things? is there anything, particularly any health issues or any that kind of material? Do you also curate that sort of thing or is it? Um... Uh, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm confused. We do. There are some things in our archive that uh, that deal with mental health uh, that we collect. That we collect. But uh, what we, as far as us making events, we have done. Uh, we actually uh, last week because we have uh, uh, we have a black queer archive here as well. And a lot of people don't know that we have a black queer archive here. Um, and last week um, we did um, a mental health for the black queer community because they don't. It was created by Naomi Peters. Uh, she created a space for the Black queer community here in the Netherlands. And last week we did a, a mental health uh, uh, program. It was from like 7 until like 10. And it was uh, like a healing session. And it's something that's needed in the community. Not just in the queer community, but like in the, the Black community in general. Because we are so traumatized from institutional racism. So it's something that's really important that we, we are taken very seriously because uh, microaggression is every day all day so it's something that we, we take really seriously like I said and, and I think we'll start having you know maybe having more events around that so I'm not sure if that was if I answered your question but no yeah because my I mean the, the whole thing I really want really to get important. a sense of and the it's, scope it's really of your work past, because of the protests that we do with kick mm-hmm. water Pete it's really heavy during protests and we just came from uh um, having, I think, how many Black Lives Matter protests that we do here that uh, Mitchell uh, and a couple of people organized. And they were, we had like th- thousands of people. So we did this for like, I think, I think four weekends in a row. It was massive and we, we need a break. And, you know, being an activist, being a Black activist, is it's, it's work and it's never ending. So yeah, we need a mental health break. We need to check in with each other. We need to help each other. This, yeah, check on each other. That's all I can say. We'll make sure we check in with the, the BCA. Like, <laughs> yeah, keep that link Let's going. We love you. Oh, we love you so much. I was just thinking as well that we need to kind of organize some kind of trip, right? Yeah, I think really, we can. I think yeah. It's, yeah, don't, don't, don't leave me out. For collaborating <laughs> in for... I think Mitchell and Jesse would absolutely love that. We definitely should 
we, we'd love to connect to, to all the black archives around Europe but across the diaspora. I think it's important that we start connecting with each other, uh, linking each other, uh, making our histories available to each other, making our collections available to each other. I think it's very important. Well, actually, that, that's I, I made totally me think. Uh, so, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I said, ac- sorry. Yeah, across, uh, you know, like obviously in Europe and America, we know there's a lot more of these kind of, you know, organizations dedicated to archiving our history. Of course, there's the African-American uh, kind of the Smithsonian thing that opened a few years ago in, in 2016. Um, and so obviously the huge big things in the States, there's that museum around lynching. But I'm thinking in Africa, you know, that that's another place where, you know, at some point we need to think about what's being archived and how history is being uh, curated there. I mean, I went to, to, to Senegal, to Dakar, and they've got an amazing museum, the history of African humanity kind of thing. I can't remember, my French is not great the way it's translated but uh i think also thinking very much about how that you know the idea of reaching out across the globe and finding out what's available in the kind of field of work that you're doing and where i mean i was interesting what you said at the beginning arika where kind of how archiving differs from museums but then there's an overlap as well to a certain Mm -hmm. extent Mm -hmm. so my question now is about the government support for the work that you're doing here in the UK you've kind of touched on it because obviously you've told us about how much the community have taken the lead in setting up the black cultural archives I mean how supported do you feel by our government and you know what if not what should they be doing and I mean it's a it's a uh, we don't receive government funding Um, we do have a negotiated maintenance grant from our local authority, Lambeth. So that's a type of government, that's local government, obviously. Um, But we don't receive any central government funding. Um, We did get a grant last year um, for doing a Windrush exhibition. I wouldn't count that as government funding, that's just the same as you get a grant from, you know, you write a bid, um, they score it, yeah, it's not quite the same. And and actually, when I'm when when I when I met Mitch and Jesse from Black Archives in Berlin, I think that that was all you know all the transport. They put us up in a hotel. I think that was all paid for by the German government. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I remember just being like, oh, how can you afford to do all of this? We could never host you in London like with this level of hospitality and they're like oh it's part of our government grants and I was like oh right okay um there is something um about um being directly funded by the government in the UK which if BCA is ever successful in getting government money that we would have to think quite deeply about for example, like the national museums and institutions that are directly funded by the government, the government has a representative on the board. The government has a say in what those organisations do. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that, personally, I'm not sure that's completely the right fit for BTA in any case. Um, so that's, that's a kind of UK-specific thing about government funding. So... So, I mean, if, if the BCA were to get government funding, it would literally be finding itself almost being colonised again. I mean, there wouldn't be any way to get funding without having somebody controlling or sitting on the board, basically. Yeah, I mean, people, like, unless, the, unless it's, you know, individual giving, unless the one's giving you a donation, they don't leave any contact details, they just give you a donation, then, then generally people do want something in return. 
And with the government, it's general like what they want in return is control. So, yeah. I mean, I guess BC will have to cross that road if if we ever, if we ever, we'll have to think about it basically if if that ever solidifies into something. However, like as you know from knowing BCA for so long, um, we're not profit making, and so and we don't have an endowment, like we don't have savings. So we're constantly kind of whatever income we get goes on our expenses income expenses so you know we, we do need some kind of solid funding so it's a bit of a conundrum really mm. Mm. yes and camille what's happening i mean do the dutch government support you how well supported are you well we're we're supportly supported by ourselves we do everything by ourselves for ourselves uh, we are an interactive archive so we do a lot of events here um, we have a lot of art projects here so we we also have an art space that we do our expositions in um, so we fund ourselves. So this is the only black-owned building in Amsterdam for a collective purpose. So we've done everything. I, I've done many tours in our in this the archive work behind me. Um, which we, we we basically uh, give tours to the entire Netherlands for all like the major um, first-year anthropology students, all the art art institutes. We give a lot of tours. Like there's there's tours all the time here. So that's how we funded ourselves. And recently. Um, I found out last week, actually it's been announced, that we have a four-year, because uh, we've never been funded by the government, ever. Uh, we've, had, we've been funded for some of our art projects, but that's about it. But we received, a, I think, a grant or some kind of funding for a four-year plan for, uh, for um, to do whatever we want with the money. And oh, wow, that's awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Yeah, and, and no one's sitting time. on your board. They're not imposing it's anyone on you. It was needed, and yeah. we deserved it. And uh, basically, uh, yeah, four years of uh, we can um, make some make some use of some art things and uh, projects coming. Um, actually, Mitchell's in the room, so maybe he can tell us a little bit more. Oh. Yeah, come on, I'm, I'm <laughs> Mitchell. He, he can tell you more about the the funding. Oh yeah, yeah. Hi, Mitchell. Is, is it, yeah, we were just interested to know if because um, obviously, um, Arika was just saying in the UK, the Black Cultural Archives doesn't get any funding from the government, and it's a bit mm. of a question mark whether they would want it because the government might want control. So, just for you guys, uh, you know, Camille was just telling us you haven't had funding so far, but. Has that changed? And if it has changed, what does that mean for the Black Archives? Yeah, so basically, uh, in the Dutch context, most of the cultural institutions get are funded by the government. Yeah? So in the US, you see a lot of private funding for all kinds of wealthy people and, and uh, uh, companies. But here, most of it is, you know, here is also welfare state. So every four years, they have like, a, they call it the Kunstplan, the cultural plan in every city and also nationally. So it's the first time that we yeah, uh, participated in this process. You have to write a plan for four years, what you want to do, and uh, you know, a financial plan. Um, and we developed a plan in which we want to kind of document, uh, erase or hidden black histories in the Dutch context. So black queer histories, the African diaspora, want to also look at gentrification, so I'm definitely also going to talk to Arika about this. And one about the black uh, emancipation movements um, over the past 100 years. 
So every year, a different exhibition tied to archive for research. And that's what we got some funding for uh, for the coming four years. So that's quite uh, exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. I look forward to seeing what you guys are doing. All Super sounds great. Exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. indeed. Congratulations. Yeah. Well done. Really cool. Oh, yeah. Sure. So oh. I was going to ask a, a final question from both yourself, Erika, and Camille, and maybe Mitchell, you want to chip in too as you're yeah. there. <laughs> don't, don't leave us yet. Uh, so the question is really, what's the one thing happening or going to happen in the no. near future at your respective projects that you really want everyone to be aware of, to take time to come and see? And it could be, maybe maybe it's two things, I don't know, because it sounds like <laughs> you guys are doing so many things. It sounds amazing. I mean, maybe, uh, Rika, if you start and then we move over to Holland. Okay, you know, we're, we're, always doing two, we're always doing more things than we can possibly handle. So I'm just going to say something that's coming up next week I would really like everyone to attend. It's going to be streamed on our YouTube channel and it's in conversation with Patrick Vernon, who is legendary activist in the UK, and Kelly Foster, legend in her own right, public historian, behind the scenes agitator and activist, uh, Wikimedian that's behind a lot of the entries about black people on, Wiki, on Wikipedia. So they're in conversation on our YouTube next week. And I'm just looking at the date, that August the 25th. So I'm just going to say that. You can go to our website, blackculturalarchives.org, blackculturalarchives.org, because there's, there's always like a whole load of stuff bubbling under and going on with PCA. So I think I'm just going to pick that one thing. Oh, no. Sorry, I'm going to do one more. No, go for it. Go for it. I, know, I knew there'd be more than one. <laughs> I'm, like, uh, I'm going to just be mentioning things. You know, there's lots of other stuff going on that we've talked about as well. But um, this August, 50 years since Mangrove 9, which is a very landmark. Yes, and a big thing land. for us. Rap, rap, rap. We're in West London. That's our local history. All right, man. So you tell us about what Mangrove 9 is. And I'll tell you that on the 20th of August, so in two days' time, we have a Remembering the Mangrove Nine panel. Wonderful. With, uh, the, some of the people that were involved at the time and also academics that study the history of Mangrove Nine. So, yeah, really some really cool. It's Activism August. <laughs> Wonderful. So, I mean, the Mangrove Nine, for anyone who doesn't know, it refers to the Mangrove Restaurant, which was on All Saints Road, which was at the vanguard of the culture of the African-Caribbean community who moved to West London in, in the Grove. It was on what was known as a front line. And actually, I mean, shout out to um, Ishmael Blaygrove of Rice and Peas, who's currently producing a book on front lines and also on the history of Labrick Grove. So I think it's two books actually he's doing. Yeah, right. one, one on the front lines and one on the history of Labrick Grove. And I know he will be talking about the Mangrove Nine. And basically, they were nine members of the African-Caribbean community and they were uh, wrongfully arrested, fitted up, framed, violated by the police. And they fought their own case and uh, won, basically. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and in particular, people like Darkus Howe, Frank Critchlow, and also um, our sister, um, oh my God, her mind, my name is slipping. Um. Oh man, I'm terrible with names, <laughs> don't worry. Yeah, 
Oh my God, how can I forget her name? She's going to really tell me off if I see her in the street. <laughs> it was also a woman from Trinidad. Uh, and she, um, there was two women actually, <laughs> and uh, seven men, and uh, Sister... Um, oh God. So we've got Barbara Beast, Rupert Boyce, Frank Richler, Rodan Gordon, Marcus Howe, Anthony Innes, Althea Jones yeah. McCoy. Is that Althea? Yes, yeah, so Althea. So, Sister Althea. Rock, Sorry, Rock Sister Althea, if you're out there. She actually uh, defended herself in that case and they won. And, um, you know, it was a landmark case. So, a really big shout out to the BCA for recognizing a very, very important part of our history because our activism and our resistance is so, so important. It must be documented. So, coming over to Amsterdam, what's going on? What do you want people to know about that's happening at the Black Archives? Um, well, first of all, we have a very interesting exhibition about the 100-year resistance and presence of Surinamese people in the Netherlands. It was supposed to stay until March, then we extended to July because of you know, the corona and is going on. But now we uh, extended it to December 5th uh, and we're going to give it an update, so this will be very, very good. Um, Besides that, we just opened up, I think Camille told about it, uh, the Black Aragon Dalmer and the Circle Black Neighborhood Southeast. And we're, uh, next week, we're having an event at the Rembrandt House. It's like a yeah, museum of Rembrandt, it's a well-known artist. But for the first time in history, they looked at um, yeah, the uh, hidden Black presence in the 17th century. 18th century, as you're saying, Amsterdam. Excellent. Um, so we'll have an event with them, together with Jennifer Tosh and a few other people. And actually, Arika, I'm going to send you an email. Okay. <laughs> we're, we, we're in a collaboration with some artists from Brazil. Uh, we okay. do some online events, and yeah. they wanted to invite you, so you can expect the email tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> And can you shout out your website for us at um, Black Archives Amsterdam so people know where to look for you? Blackarchives.nl. You can also check us on IG, very active on Instagram um, and Facebook, the Black Archives. Simple. (laughs) And uh, so coming kind of, we're going to come to the last, we've got the last few minutes left of the show. So I just want to thank Arika and Camille very much for agreeing to do this and taking your time to talk to us and to our listeners. And so I just, Arika, I just want to maybe just, you know, what are you going to do with yourself in the next uh, couple of months, just on a personal kind of... On a know, personal? Yeah, on just, a personal. Um, what are you going to focus on? <laughs> I'm going to get a bit of rest. going to get some rest. And... Um, you know my life is all about BCA. <laughs> That's the most difficult question you could possibly ask. In while while you're trying to reopen your 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 building, Arika, what are you going to do for yourself? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to try and start writing again. That's been one thing that um, since I started at BCA, I haven't done any writing at all for myself. I've been doing a lot of writing of funding bids and things like that, but I haven't done any writing for myself. So in the next couple of months, I'm gonna get some rest and do some writing and you um, writing and is prepare and prepare for black history month for you yeah <laughs> and what is your writing what sort of genre what what do you write just very quickly tell us just write short stories mm. any old genre whatever 
whatever comes. So we can look um, forward to hearing know, some of your stories in the future. Um, I think there will be. I, if you just if you just Google Harry Potter stories or something, something will come up. Wonderful. We'll make sure we point our listeners in that direction. And Camille, <laughs> what what are you going to be doing with yourself? Um, I'm going to try to get some rest because we've had a very rough couple of months already uh, with all the protests that we've done, like heavily, uh, try to take care of our mental health. Because um, there's only three of us that run the building and run the organization. It's, we're down one person, so it's just me and Mitchell at the moment. So it's a lot of work, like a lot uh and prepare for black history month we have another building that we're running another so and then also prepare for is your black history month in october as well we have like yeah it's universal here in the in the uk i mean in europe they just group everyone together in october which i just think is weird because for me i don't think that's black history month you can't just group europeans black europe together in, in october it's right. really the day that slavery ended for them, which is, we celebrated twice. We have the Kuti uh, Koti, which is the emancipation of slavery. So we need to talk about this. Yeah. October cannot be Black History Month for the entire European. It should be called something else. Yeah, it's so strange that it's one month for Isn't the whole it? of Europe. Talk. I always say Black country. History is 365 days a year. Yeah. True. I mean, in October at PCA, we try and do Black Futures Month anyway so you're doing you're doing that again this year as well yeah yeah of course every every month like every year black futures month in october like i do totally agree camille but october for the whole of europe like what are they playing at yeah so and after that i'm just gonna gear up uh for the protest coming up for kickout for uh black peets kickouts water peets we have protests right after black history month so Right after September, it is busy, busy, busy until January again. So I'm going to try to get some rest. Like we all need to get rest. Brilliant. Well, look, you both deserve some rest when you can get it. Get it while you can. (laughs) So I just want to say again, thank you both very much to uh, Rika from the Black Cultural Archives in Britain. In Britain. In Britain. In Brixton, which is Britain for us. And to Camille from the Black Archives in Amsterdam. And it's been a real pleasure having you both on and hearing about what you're doing. And listeners out there, Portobello Radio listeners, please uh, check out the uh, information on on the Facebook page. And we'll make sure we share links to both the organizations so you can find out what's happening. And do visit, if you're in London, visit Brixton. And if you're in um, uh, Holland, visit the um, archives in Amsterdam really important uh it's a crucial part of capturing our culture and heritage so yeah thank you both and have a wonderful tuesday night and i look forward to seeing both of you in the person at some point in the future big yourselves up wait it's gonna be so good and i really can't wait to visit in amsterdam can't wait to see you in person again isis have a wonderful tuesday Take care. Bye. Bye, everybody. Archives in the house. (laughs) 
So this has been uh, uh, Isis on Portobello Radio with Greg being really quiet in the background. Yeah, I am, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Talk normally quick. I mean, you know, you know that I'm saving all my energy for this Friday. You know that we do a rocking Friday show. In case you guys don't know, uh, Isis, myself, and adorable Piers Thompson all present a fantastic community-led uh, uh, show every Friday. So I'm saving all my energy for that. And, and it's going to be a big carnival special again this week because last week was oh. Carnival Pioneers, yeah, but man. of course. Carnival is happening in Labrick Grove virtually. As but we speak, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. virtually yeah. as we virtually. speak. Digitally over the weekend of Carnival weekend. So if you guys are planning to come over this side of town to celebrate and have some party and some fun, then we suggest that you stay at home and get it all in your ear rolls through portobelloradio.com, through Carnival Radio, which is... Oh, I can't remember the name of the website, but go to nhcarnival.org and uh, and they will point you and in you the right direction. And you sign up as well and yeah, you, you can get you can download the app and you can see app. everything. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you can drink your rum, you can eat your doubles Yay. and your roti and your pillow yeah. and all those things at home. And smoke your tea without getting arrested. Oh, your herbal substances. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so no, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be really good fun. So yeah, yeah. And of course, we've got a few more of these. You are amazing. Absolutely amazing. I love that show. I love the guys. On the other end of the line there, I'm sorry we had some technical hitches at the beginning of there, but you seem to have presented several of these now uh, and, and chaired them, should I say, and it's just been brilliant. Well, you know, big brilliant. shout out to our partners, the uh, Pavilion High, Portobello Absolutely. Pavilion, who Portobello Radio has supported from day one. Absolutely, and Vicky Verkey, of course, and I mean, this, this week continues with more Pavilion Hive stuff. Tomorrow at six o'clock, we have... Um, Jonas Style versus Facebook, uh, which is um, uh, going to be a fantastic, wow. similar kind of vibe as what we've been doing tonight with the Zoom and da 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 And then straight after that, we've got Flipside London Radio with Adam McManus, and he is with Nettie Baker, Ginger Baker's daughter. Ginger Baker, the most fabulous drummer, the Afrobeats drummer of the 60s and 70s cream. Um, uh, we've got his daughter coming in, and she's going to be chatting all about her dad and the books that she ghost wrote, etc., etc. And then, of course, Thursday, we've got another one of these hive things going on at uh, 6 o'clock. Um, Harry Rock. Uh, return this symbiosis, so they're going to be chatting about that. Which nice. you and I were and part of course, of it was Harry's idea to get the Black Archives on and to actually have them have a conversation with the Black Cultural Archives. So, yeah, big man. up to Harry. Big up Harry. Big up the Portobello Pavilion Hive massive, Indeed. including yourself. You straddle both camps, so it's fantastic. As does Piers. As does Piers. We're absolutely. a very, very, as I say, incestuous kind of community. Oh, we are. Grove and Portobello. As long as we're all supporting each other, then, uh, big then up. that's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely superb. Thank you. You. Thank you for another spectacular show. Absolutely bro. Absolutely bro. And thank you everybody for tuning in. Piers has just pinged me a little message saying big shout out to uh, Jolivet Anderson uh, Dunoning uh, listening in the United yeah, States. Shout so out to Sister Jolivet. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So, And everybody else is tuned in. Yes, from, indeed. From, from, from the Netherlands through to the United States through to um, Italy. Globally. France. I've seen quite a few different flags come up on the radar. So it's bro. Absolutely superb. Thank and you guys. And make sure you girls. tune in on Friday and if not before. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Portobelloradio.com Tune in when you get the chance.